Five scores! Rick Bod. We've decided to get ourselves back in the game again with our podcast. Rick Bod. Probably the craziest story that you're ever going to hear about hockey. We're going to be coming back to you on a regular basis. You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Everyone, episode 111 of the Squid and Ultimate Leaf Fan Show. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leaf Fan. Joining me as always, my winger, Ricky Squid Vibe. Squid, how are we keeping? Good, Michael. No complaints. No. Just another day. What are you going to say? <laughs> well, I hope you're going to say a little more when our guest comes on, okay? <laughs> Hope you, you got laryngitis today, maybe, but I'm going to try to get a little more out of you today with our guest. And just speaking of our guest, uh, it's someone you can totally relate to in regard to his harrowing at times life around Maple Leaf Gardens and along with the Toronto Maple Leafs. He started basically as an intern at the gardens, worked his way up to the role of GM, and when appointed at the age of 30, was the youngest in NHL history. He's the author of three terrific books. One of them just finished, by the way, which I didn't know he had written. I'll have to ask him about that. And today you can hear him on Leak Broadcast. You can hear him on NHL Network and anywhere he generously gives his time. Gordy Stalick, Gord, first off, thanks for joining us. And how you doing? Uh, Mike, I'm good. Ricky, always a pleasure. We go uh, we go may, way back in many different ways. So good to connect with both of you guys. Well, we have so much to talk to you about, but let's just start with both you guys. I get, get your opinion on the recently released Offside, the Harold Ballard documentary. Gordon, let's begin with you. When did you hear about it? What was your initial reaction to the project? Well, it's a, a, a teammate of Ricky's and uh, Mark Osborne, of course, former Leaf. He was golfing at, um, I believe, Weston. Somewhere he's never invited Rick nor I anyway. But uh, <laughs> and, uh, and he happened to golf with Michael Geddes, uh, who he knew a little bit. And Michael Geddes, who's uh, in the business. Paul Pascu knows him and those guys. But... Uh, just mentioned he was doing a, a documentary on Harold Ballard. Could not believe one had not been done. And and Ozzy said, "Well, you, you got to talk to Gord Stellick because he's you know he remember you know just he's plugged in, remembers all that." So he kind of put us together. And um, so I played a, a small role in, in helping him. Whether it's whether he got I can't remember who got who, but people like Rick and Daryl and Lanny and Tiger and Wendell and others, and then appearing on it as well. So uh, I didn't know Jason Priestley was involved at the time, but that was. That was great, you know, a passionate and uh, expert guy in, in putting together films like that and well-known. So uh, that's that's kind of how it went. Real challenges because they had a tape during COVID when there were lots of lockdowns. So mm-hmm. uh, there were a lot of little obstacles along the way. But uh, at the end of the day, it came out uh, just uh, a week or two ago. Squid, when did you hear about it? Uh, well, I got interviewed uh, while it was way back. Gosh, it was probably about a year and a half ago or more. Uh, right. Gordon said it was during the pandemic. It was at a restaurant downtown, uh, which wasn't open, obviously, because of the pandemic. Uh, so they kind of had all the cameras and everything in there. And I walked into the restaurant and did the interview. They asked me some questions about Harold and I answered them the best I could. <laughs> did you get a free meal? No, no, no. It was, no, it, it was, it, it was at Barbarians. Yeah. Yeah. The restaurant was closed. Yeah. <laughs> but you got the nice place at Barbarians. I was at the uh, 
Royal York and they got to shoot people different ways. Right. You know, and they should have looked at my stocky stature and not have me kind of crumpled uh, in the big chair there. Brother Bob and Rick look like male models and um, <laughs> I look like someone in the Godfather, whatever. But uh, anyway, it was uh, fun the way they pieced it all together. Yeah, now, course, well, it was a it was a terrific uh, job that they did, I, I thought yeah. anyway. Um, well, I was going to ask Gord right off the bat. Did you did you have mixed feelings on how you'd contribute on your end? Because let's face it, I mean, you were right around a lot of the controversy, including getting hired as GM at the time. Well, I, I you know, it's it's like Ricky or whatever. If you can, um, you know, you 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 wear what you say. That's you know, you'd be accountable for what you say. And yeah. I've always um, I've always balanced it that there's um, you know, he uh, the guy that. Like, so my steps were one, my first break was a guy named Stan Abodiak was a neighbor. So that's how I got in part-time working game nights. Then two, the the greatest guy you could ever meet in hockey, Jim Gregory was the general manager when I got brought in to work in the uh, office part-time, you know, so that was another break. Punch Imlach was actually really good to me. His, his reign the second time was a disaster. And I think a lot of that, the uh, the animus that went towards his, his best move was acquiring Rick. I mean, that was a great move. That yeah. trade with Vancouver was a great trade. But a lot of the animus of some of the players, in a lot of ways, is directed towards a big part towards punch. But ultimately, Ballard hired him. So, so yeah, I, there, you know, there's there's positive parts to our, our relationship that I, I remember and that. But, that, but the tough, you know, the thing about this kind of uh, video is – the great footage they got speak for itself. So how can I how can I rationalize what he said to Barbara from, you know, or, or what he said about if a woman goes in the dressing room, she's going to encounter, uh, you know, um, appendages as large as large as long as his arm. Like like I can look at it and say, OK, I know he knows he's getting front page. He's going to be the lead story. I, I that I could see the glint in his eye. That was a big part of doing that because, you know, the media ruled the day back then and he just wanted you know spell the name ballard right i don't care where i'm on and uh you know quite often he could you know any they can remark that could be hurt a guy like rick or a guy like me or someone else but i could see that but you can't rationalize it you know i'm mean, not gonna go defend the guy about that he's gotta he's gotta live what he said even though it was a different era that's fair enough i i mean now were they too kind or too harsh in some instances on or or are they just playing nice in the sandbox do you think and your overall view of how they they the whole episode came across the offside. I think all in all is fair. That's what you want to look at fair. And, you know, and, and there's a lot of people since come up with stories about, you know, him personal stories, which, which are great, but they, they don't make for a great documentary like that. And it's, you know, I'm you're not looking to you know, you're not looking to sensationalize his body of work running the Toronto Maple Leafs. There's a lot of positives I can talk about, but when he was in charge, you know, and he look at the opportunity he gave me and he gave my brother and that. But but you're you're hard pressed to win. And there were a lot of organizations like that. Like, you know, back then, Ricky, when there were 21 teams, there were probably five or six like Montreal and Philadelphia and the Islanders that, you know, just had a modern sense of how you manage and do what other. The others were like mom and pop variety stores. They really were. You know, the St. Louis Blues, nobody wanted to buy them. Nobody. And Harry Ernest got them for six million dollars in 1983. So that's the scales wow. of economy. I mean, it, it, it was, you know, yep. so people can piss and moan and say, geez, we should have got. Well, no, the, it, it was a mom and pop business by and large. And a lot of owners, in, including uh, Mr. Ballard, ran it, you know, kind of ran it like a mom and pop business. Right? Yeah, I, 
You know, I think the biggest surprise for me was through that whole thing was uh, was him bringing Punch back as a general manager. I, you know, I I thought that was probably a I don't know, maybe it was just him reaching back and hoping that Punch would be able to come in and repeat what he did in the '60s. Uh, but I thought that was kind of a, a bad move that he made when he did that. Although. I mean, I'm thankful because he brought me to Toronto, but, <laughs> but at the same time, you're looking at it and you're thinking, why would he bring punch back? Like, I don't know. I, yeah. I just thought that that was kind of one of the, the moves that I thought was a bad one. Well, you know, you see in the, in the video there, he gets, Harold gets interviewed after they win a Stanley cup. So, you know, he, he was part of that organization that won four Stanley cups in seven years. So, you know, now that we're older, Rick, when we're 25, 10 years seems like a long, long time. Now you get to go. So probably what um, what Har Harold looked at, he, it wasn't that long when you're a guy pushing 80. And mm -hmm. the, the big seller was King Clancy. King Clancy was big on, you know, Punch Inlock had had started the Buffalo Sabres, had a lot of success early on, and then had been fired. And King really, King was very tight with Punch. And it showed that in the documentary that King was tight with Ballard. Before that, he probably was more tight with Punch. And, and so he uh, he pushed bringing him back and punch had to say, you know, kind of what, you know, kind of what Jim Rutherford's done a softer 2023 version of in Vancouver, like, you know, like skewering everything that's going on, particularly a guy like Roger Nielsen, like that's ridiculous. You know, the guy was mm. innovative ahead of his time. So there's no question. And again, punch Imlac was very good to me starting out, but yes, as far as the, the product on the ice, his best time is, is, uh, his best due date, um, probably had expired, but certainly under Harold Ballard, uh, he wasn't going to get that chance. Yeah. Well, get, and then after Punch, of course, Jerry came in. And, uh, you know, I've talked about this with a lot of people. They asked me a lot of questions about back then and everything. And I, I thought we drafted pretty good. Uh, but I always thought that a lot of those guys were brought in way, way too early, like at 18 years old. You look at Jim Benning, uh, probably had the, the body and the mind of a 15-year-old when he, you know, got drafted and probably should have went back to junior for a couple of years. There was a lot of guys back then that were brought in, I thought, way too early. The only guy I think that was ready to play as an 18-year-old when I was there was Wendell. Yeah, and I think I, I think Wendell actually was uh, ended up uh, was had a later birthday, so it had been nineteen. But I'm splitting hairs here. But particularly with with Jim Benning and Ally Afraidy in particular, Ricky, you're 100 percent right that you know now now that I have a, a son that's 19, you know I understand what it is. And and as a matter of fact, our first the first draft I was involved the Jim Benning or, or I guess it was the second one, so 1981, right up till the night before the draft. Uh, we were looking at taking either James Patrick or Jimmy Benning and James Patrick remained firm that he was going to go to university of North Dakota for a couple of years. And Jim Benning was willing to come. So that's that, you know, which is ridiculous. Like, you know, uh, uh, Jim uh, Patrick got drafted, I think three spots later by the New York Rangers and yeah, punch punch wanted him out. I don't know why as an 18 year old. And I was a member Ricky, as you would. And I don't know if Mike, have you ever met him? And Jim certainly has matured, uh, along along the way and become a he was an outstanding scout and he did a, yeah. did a solid job in a tough spot in Vancouver he looked like he'd landed on the planet Mars like he'd look like he like here he is he would he would sit there and he'd watch the Toronto Marley Jr. team practiced about four o'clock in the afternoon 
I remember Jimmy Benning would be there with his Portland Winterhawks leather jacket watching <laughs> practice. You know, he had nowhere to go and actually probably show why he was a student of the game, had success later. Ally Afraidy, man, he was like, uh, you know, and what a wonderful guy Al is now. But he was like, welcome back, Cotter. He was a sweat hog. He should have just, you know, been a goofball and enjoyed being in Belleville or wherever if they mm -hmm. traded his rights somewhere else and, you know, killed it in the OHL for a couple of years and and been allowed to, you know, have a kind of a fun childhood and not be. Yeah. Yeah. There there was a that was a that was a big mistake by our organization back then, rushing a couple of them. And we and we weren't alone about not not putting the proper resources to develop them properly, which is commonplace nowadays. But a lot of organizations, including ours, you know, didn't have to the fullest back then. Well, it's funny yeah. you mentioned well, that because we haven't, oh, we didn't have, we haven't had Jimmy on the, the, the broadcast yet, but we had Al and any of those young guys along with Rick is saying, they all agreed they should have gone back. Yeah. And especially yeah. I Frady. He was, he had played something like, 35 midget AAA games, uh, the Olympics, and then he's drafted by the Leafs and he's in the NHL. Yeah, he played about played about like 10 games at Belleville after the yeah, that's right. the Olympics. And uh, it, 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 funny, he said when he was in high school, what was it like? The, the teacher said to him, or the principal said, like he, he was doing terrible or he just didn't show up. And the guy said, okay, uh, if uh, as long as you show up and you promise you're not going to go to university, I'll pass you. So, you know, that, that, that was it. And then he, he had that 84 Olympics, which wasn't miracle on ice. It wasn't a positive experience for the Americans. And then he only had about a dozen games when he came back with Belleville. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Well, he told, he told me himself that he should have went back to Belleville for, he said, at least two more years. He said that I, he said, I would have became the player that I did a lot earlier in my career. Now, 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 Ricky, you were a 19-year-old. You were part of the Baby Bulls, right? So, yeah. um, I, so what what made that work for you and for those guys? Because by and large, I mean, whether I'm trying to get them all, I'm trying to remember Pat Riggin, um, geez, it was Ramage Michelle one of them, and, and anyway, Michelle Goulet and all those, Craig Hartsburg, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but that worked, was it because there was less pressure in a place like Birmingham or, you know? Well, I think that was part of it. Um you know, but I, I we were treated very, very well too. I mean, we were they looked after us pretty good, and and uh, Brophy, of course, was our coach, and you know, Brophy well, and uh, or knew him well as as I did. Uh, I loved the guy, and and he helped me a lot. Like he he was the first guy who came to me, and he said, "Listen," he said, "You know, we don't have the tough guys we had the the year before, and if you don't stick up for yourself, they're going to try and run you out of the." the game. And I, and he said, so you gotta, you know, you gotta fight back a little bit. And I said, okay. I said, I'll do it. And sure enough, I did. I think I had 248 penalty minutes that year. And, uh, I got the heck beat out of me a few times, but well, quite a few times. Uh, <laughs> but you know, I, I, I think just showing up and saying, Hey, I'm not going anywhere. I don't care what you do to me. I'm not going anywhere. And I think that really helped me, uh, you know, especially going the next year into the into the National League and and still put up penalty minutes and and that sort of thing. But uh, I don't know. I, it was just probably the way I was anyway. I, I never backed down from anything. But yeah, he just I, he just reinforced it that you need to do this if you're going to survive. 
you know, and, and Mike, you know, when you, when you look back at the doc and, you know, you know, uh, of John Brophy quite well, maybe you knew him as well. And, and um, he's just like, like he's like, it's what I love as we get older. It's about great people you meet in, in your life. And John Brophy's one of them. And John Brophy's a real smart yeah. guy. He, you know, he way smarter than think, but the thing is he, he wanted to coach, like he would murder someone if it meant staying in the NHL, but he couldn't, he couldn't convey that nor would 20 players agree with that. Like he didn't understand why, why Russ Courtnell, you know, wouldn't understand how good he's got and why, you know, whatever. And that's just one example or anybody. And, you know, that's the, that's the thing he was in over his head and people could argue, maybe I was too, but he was in over his head as a coach, but you know, man, he was so passionate. He loved it. And he was just, just a great, great guy. You really wanted to see it succeed but he would always resort back to slap shot hockey. Like when he's talking to Ricky about it, it was still a big part of the game in the seventies. Right. And then in the late eighties, now things had changed and that was his go-to that all of a sudden when things went off the rails a bit, um, you know, the, 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 the shit always hit the fan and and he would be, he would be part of it in a different way. Now your relationship with John, yeah, uh, you know, it was a little ragged to begin with, from what I understand and from what I've read from what you've written. But it did came around, came around where he started to try. <laughs> to so talk about that and maybe what you really thought about him as a coach. Oh, I know my, my relationship with Brof was aces. It was aces. No, no, it was always good. He came he uh, came in as an assistant coach. Yeah. Um, I don't know how he came in. I think Floyd Smith brought him in and then he and Floyd hated up to hate, ended up detesting each other. I don't know, whatever. But he just <laughs> appeared. I, I I think Floyd brought him in because he didn't want Dan Maloney to be able to hire one of his buddies because Floyd was pissed that when he was coach in 79, 80 for a bit, like Maloney. And I think, I think McKechnie might've been the guy he was thinking, well, McKechnie being an assistant, but anyway, so Brof was involved and then he went down to St. Catharines and Harold fell in love with him and Brof became the guy. So when I became general manager, um, I understood that I was inheriting John Brophy as coach, you know, and, and he, he wouldn't have been my choice as coach, but I understood that. So, I didn't, you know, I, I, he, and he really tried, I tried to corral things in a lot of ways about things like, you know, the, uh, you know, he wasn't big on Borea, which, you know, particularly with Harold there for starters. And also how can you not be big on Borea? Like, bro, you know, bro, the, the naturally skilled guy beyond belief and that. So, you know, you tempered that, uh, the one casualty was the Russ Cortinal trade because I gave bro the toughness he wanted. And I gave Russ a chance to go somewhere else where he'd been a healthy scratch for a bunch of games and drafted Ty Domi and, you know, a few things. So anyway, when it started falling off, I didn't grease the skids. So the one thing, the good note, the funny note is, so I finally got, I finally got, this is the way things worked, how small it is, but, and how I kind of understood the inner working. So I uh, finally ballot agreed. Okay. Let Brof go. Uh, and then George Armstrong, only if George Armstrong would be take over as interim coach, which George didn't want to do, but he agreed he would do it, you know. Uh, so so Brof uh, had a, about a year and a half left, and he would think he was making 125 grand as coach. And he just is wonderful. And he came up, you know, he came up to the office and said, look, um, you know, Ballard wants me to still be around, whatever. So I'll I'll do whatever you want. If you want me to F off and go somewhere else, I'll stay out of your hair. You know, all that kind of stuff. He was wonderful. So the next day, and you think the power of the papers back then. So all of a sudden there's all these stories and Harold had his guys like Milt Dunnell and George Gross and Jim Proudfoot that he talked to. So he goes, yeah, and Brof's going to stay in the organization and he's going to do whatever, uh, you know, but of course uh, he's going to have to make less money. Right. And, and I know Ricky touched on that money was always, so I get a call from Brof and Brof goes, 
look, I may not be the smartest guy out there, but I'm not going to work for less money. You know, what do I do? And I said, okay, leave it with me. So I'm sitting there and I end up, I write, I type out a letter from John Brophy to Harold, but I'm doing it. Just, I knew how to, all the touchstones, just hitting all the things about how much he enjoyed working for the Maple Leafs, the love, the passion, the great opportunity, how well he was treated, but I'm a coach, you know what? And I, I, I think I got to move on kind of thing. So I put it in Ballard's mail. And then about an hour later, he buzzes me and he goes, so I go back there and he goes, read that letter to me, which he often would do. So I pick it up. Now I'm reading the letter that I wrote to Harold for John Brophy. So he goes, well, I guess that's the end of Brof then. And so he goes, get Crump down here. So I get Don Crump down, the controller. And he says, what do we owe him? And Crump says, well, okay, about 175. But if you present value it, and, and Harold said, no, don't present value it. Just cut him a check and wish him all the best. So I phone Brof back. And I go, Brof, come on down in an hour. He comes down. He gets to say goodbye to Harold. He's got a check for $175,000. He leaves and he goes on and coaches again in South Carolina for a while. And that's where I talk about thinking on your feet when you're around Harold Ballard. So, so the, the Brof, you know, the Brof thing uh, ended on a real positive. And, uh, and, you know, and I said, even though we were two very, like we respected each other as people. Well, I don't know if you agree with me, Gordy, on, on Brof. I just want to touch on him again. Um, I think if he had him came in to the league in the early 70s, I think he might have had a little more success because he wasn't an X and O's guy. He was more of a motivating type of coach. And all he wanted was 100% from his players, whatever style he played. But, of course, in the early 70s, mid-70s, with the broad street bullies and everything, I think he would have been a lot more successful. Oh, no question. No question. But I'll tell you, as, as you know, now you were kind of gone by then too to Chicago, but you know, in the late eighties, you have video set up and all that. Mm -hmm. And he, he, and every day he'd be watching the movie platoon. Right. So that means you know, like you go into those office, like, you know, so, so that war movie platoon would be on. So, you know, that's kind of the, uh, anyway, it's uh, from, for, so Roger Nielsen was ahead of his time. And then yeah. Rose, 10 years later is kind of behind his time. It's behind anyway, his time. Yeah. Ne never the right time. Never the right yeah. time. <laughs> now you briefly touched on Harold and, you know, dealing with Harold and how you, you know, made things work and being there as long as you were, we'll get you maybe to touch on that a little bit, how you grew throughout the organization. But in your book, Hockey, Heartaches and How, you speak of his office being almost, I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, um, an intimidating environment. It's almost like the unsuspecting prey is lured into the domain of the predator and with the bearskin rug and the floor and the ghost of all those former Maple Leafs and you know, uh, uh, iconic figures looming in the room, it would, you just didn't have a chance against Harold, but you kind of figured that out right away. And the best way you would deal with that is almost to get him out of that environment and then deal with him one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah, well, well, yeah. And as they said in the documentary, the, the apartment was nothing palatial. He never wanted to go first class. He liked to hang with the guys, go on the bus. He never wanted the suite when you're on the road. And the apartment had a, you know, a, a small kitchen and a kind of a bed sitting room, nothing special. But he had the hot stove lounge for food, so he could just go down there all the time. And then, <laughs> then the office, again, wasn't big. But to your point, Mike, you're right. And I don't know if Rick was up there that you came in 
and wow, it was just pictures everywhere. And, you know, just like a big bearskin rug under that apparently Tiger Williams killed the bear with a bow and arrow. And that was it. And he had the big fountain pen and, and he, uh, it was home ice advantage when he was there. But, but on the other hand, you had uh, Russ Cordell tells the story that like he was really good when the kids got drafted and their parents came by and Russ always said how well, cause Russ's dad had passed. So how well his mom was treated when they came in. And so, so it was like August and, you know, cause that's when they usually signed before training camp started this back in 1983. And uh, so he would have been 80. So they said, so I guess, I guess they're, they're sitting with him and his mom in that environment. And all of a sudden at the side comes about waist high, an inflatable doll that was left over as a gag from his 80th birthday party. There's been some 80th birthday party. So he just goes, Oh, let me just get that. And he goes up and gets it and just, I guess just breaks it. So the air comes out and Russ goes, him and his mom just sitting there in this like naked, this, this, uh, this prop gag, 80 year old inflatable doll comes sailing through. So like I said, it doesn't matter where, where it was. It was never dull. I think I was in there once Gord, and, the one thing that caught me when I was in his office was all the newspaper articles on yeah. the ceiling and on the walls. Like yeah, you could barely see the walls. Like, yeah. I mean, it was all, but it was all oh, yeah. about him. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's why that's just, just spell my name. Right. Right. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, get it. He wanted to see the press clippings of that. It was all about him. And like we found in the documentary, you know, he's a guy comes out of prison at 65, 66, he never thought he'd get the Toronto Maple Leafs. So he's got it. He goes, I'm going to have fun with it. I'm going to be a big shot and people are going to know that I own the Toronto Maple Leafs and they're going to know it every day. Yeah. Now, well, they sure they sure did because oh, yeah. his, his goal of getting on the front page of the sports every day pretty much worked out. Well, it seemed like the environment at the gardens at times, and I've talked to a lot of gardens employees, including your brother and all the other people there, that you know you're almost on you're, you're almost walking in eggshells and that's no pun intended against the hamstrom walking around ballard because at any moment he could flip and fire you or do something or do something irrational but you seem to adjust what is it about you and besides stock you're a nice guy but that he all of a sudden just he you gained his trust like you did and and advanced your career throughout the gardens as you did well the office was so so small i mean it was like no you know so um, so to start working in there part-time when Jim Gregory brought me in and the fact that Harold Bowder lived there. So I always relate one story. I mean, like he lived there 24 seven that I was going to university of Toronto. And, uh, so I came the night before to get ready the notes and statistics for the next day. Cause I, I had some classes and you could hear the remnants of some concerts going on. And it's like nine o'clock at night. And all of a sudden from behind me, his front door Ballard walks out and he's just wearing boxer shorts and I'm going, oh, crap, like he's going to be pissed. He's going to be pissed that I'm here, right? And he walks by and he rips the telex off and he's looking at the telex machine. And I kind of clear my throat, you know, expecting what the hell you did anyway. Anyway, he couldn't have been nicer. I think he was impressed that I was there. He liked that. So he he sat down just in his boxer shorts. And it's one of our first, you know, long chats, get to know each other kind of thing. So uh, so so that was it. And I, I you know, I, I, w- I was smart in that. I, I was respectful. And I did anything. I did anything. I got, and I, and I wasn't, I, I was respectable without being a suck hole, I think, but I, and I think he, 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 he liked that, but um, I, I could, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever needed to get done, I, I would do it. And he liked keeping the office lean and mean. So pretty soon I was in charge of public relations, team travel. I typed up the contracts 
And when the secretary went out for lunch, I watched the phones for an hour. So, you know, you got the two extremes, right? You got you got the glamour of being the big stuff. And then, hey, there's nobody else to answer the phones. So uh, so what, what I did was I knew he lived there. So I would get, I'd be the first person to get to work every morning. And it wasn't like I was splitting the atom. I'd have my Toronto Sun and Toronto Star, my cup of coffee, my muffin. And then, you know, he, he'd be up early. You could see his phone line, you know, going back and forth because switchboard put the calls through. But I'd start answering his phone and screening calls for him. So he, and then I'd buzz back and he'd kind of go, oh, you're there, right? I go, yeah, anyway. And then all of a sudden, quite often, five minutes later, he'd come out in his house coat and just sit down in uh, in the office and shoot the shit. And and I know, so, so I, and again, I wasn't being a suck hole. I just knew he valued that. Somebody yeah. on time, somebody not Smart. a clock watcher. And, you know, that's, that's the kind of stuff that kind of grew. And then being on the road with him, Ricky, I think you could, when you were on the road with him, he, he was kind of like a favorite uncle. Like he was really, you know, really like nice with everyone. When at Maple Leaf Gardens, he was the boss. So you had to, every phone call, you never knew what he had a problem with. It could be anything, but uh, you know, on the road, you got to see a very different, real soft side of him. Yeah. I think uh, I've often said that Harold never treated us poorly. He just didn't pay us enough. <laughs> Probably. Yeah, no, he, no, that's yeah. And he, he said some outrageous stuff in the press and that sort of thing. But he never treated us poorly. We stayed in the best hotels wherever we were on the road. I do remember the one time when uh well King Clancy, I think, kept him pretty much in line for the most part when he was alive. And then when he passed, things kind of changed quite a bit. But I remember uh, we were on a charter on Air Ontario, the little prop planes, and the flight attendant came by with a basket, a wicker basket full of chocolate bars. And King said that the other old guy behind me can't have any. He's a diabetic. Well, she went, went up to Harold. He put his paw in, grabbed about four bars. She slapped his hand, and he canceled the charters the next day for the rest of the season. Yeah, and I don't think he realized it, but that was the year that Inichek, Freescher, Juris, all those guys were kind of relatively new. So we didn't hang out because we chartered all the time. So the second half, we flew commercial. We went out all the time together and got to trust one another, know one another more. And we were like the fourth or fifth best team in the league in the second half. I don't think Harold even noticed that. No, you know what? I I... I kind of forgot that part of it because Ricky, uh, that's an interesting sideline to it. Cause I was the travel guy. It made my life hell that all of a sudden from canceling <laughs> charters to be whatever. And you know, you have to go continental airs, us air. And then I remember he got in one of the commercial flights. He got, I can't, I don't, I'm not going to name the flight club, but whatever it was, he got pissed at the flight attendant again. So we have our itinerary for the week and guy. And so he goes, we're not going to go in this effing airline. And so we have you like, say whatever they are in scheduled for three days later and guy Kinnear's holding up going Gordy wrong, wrong. So I got to find another. So yeah, we had that and we didn't do the whole second half. We did go back to chartering eventually, but yes, his point was this person showed him up and she was a flight attendant, man. And yeah. uh, I'm sure she lost her job. And I, the guy from Air Ontario, holy mackerel, we're talking back and forth all the time. And we're taking planes, trains, and automobiles. I expected to see John Candy and Steve Martin on, a, on some of our flights there. But that was the kind of thing 
what, whatever amount of business, just because, yeah, you, you got a very good memory of that one, Ricky. Now, yeah. the other thing about unglamorizing the, the life you had living around the guards and what you were doing, you tell one funny story, you've got lots of funny stories. The one story you told me that got me was, uh, and I hope you can remember this one, uh, the Leafs were in a bad slump, you were in the press box, and Ballard had a direct line to you all the time, you, you were on call, and the fans were booing, they were throwing jerseys on the ice, and all of a sudden the phone rings and he wants you down. You're thinking, uh-oh, who's he want me to trade? Like, I got to blow him out, this out, what's happening? And he opened the door to the bunker and he gave you a different greeting. Yeah, Something. yeah, yeah. So, okay, so a little bit, I get it right. And it wasn't GM then, but anyway, still. I mean, I was like, I was GM for about 18 months, but I was there for like 14 years, right? Yeah. So to your point, and Mike, so there, so there was no, the direct line was switchboard would just call around during the game, different people. So there was okay. just one little one little skinny phone in the press box. And so whoever picked it said, Gort. So I'd go and it'd be because he would just call switchboard and say, you know, get me Bernie Fournier, get me Don McKenzie, get me Gord Finn. You know, these are so anyway, yeah. Gord, and, then, and I remember the voice, Gordy, call Mr. Ballard. Okay, great. So I can look down, he's in the bunker. I'm standing. The extension number was 291. So I hit 291 and you see him go and he's got that big boy. Hello. And I go, hey, Mr. Ballard, it's Gord. You want to talk to me? And um he goes, yeah. I mean, we're like, so we're losing. It's not the one where they're not throwing sweaters on the ice, but we're losing like eight one to Boston. And he goes, what the fuck is the organist playing? I go, <laughs> I go, like, I go, I don't, jeez, I don't know. And I, I just kind of go, so you're, you're not, you're not happy with him. And he, and he actually had a funny line. He goes, I got, I go, um, well, I'll go, I'll go talk to him. And he goes, well, tell him if he doesn't smarten up, I'll send him home and I'll come up and sing. You know, what kind of a funny reason he won, but he could watch. So I made a point of walking to the organist and just kind of saying, hey, tough game kind of thing, whatever, and just walking back. But you better follow through with it. But, yeah, you didn't. You just kind of like, yeah, we're down 8-1. And, and, again, that was part of his what's going on in the building. It's my building, and there's, there's something I'm not happy about, so I'm, gonna, I'm going to get it addressed. It's funny <laughs> – what I mentioned that he treated us well, and there was one really funny moment. Uh, he would always come down to the dressing room and get his legs rubbed like guy can hear before practice and that sort of thing. But I remember the one time he, he had it, he was getting it done during practice. So one of the guys had put the baby powder in the hairdryer as a, as a prank. All right. Well, yeah. You know, we're, we're, we're walking out into the dressing room after practice and here's Harold coming out of the shower and we're all like, Oh, oh. <laughs> sure enough. He picked that hair dryer, <laughs> baby powder all over him. He just started howling. He said, who did that? That was unbelievable. I, I would never have thought of that. <laughs> well, he'd, he'd, he'd like being one of the guys. And, and uh, the other part though, uh, Mike was uh, with guys like Rick, they're sort of like, well, first of all, to be honest, a bunch of you, a bunch of you guys smoked back then, which is hard to believe. Yeah. I'd go deliver statistics yeah. during the uh, intermission. About a third of the team and a third of the NHL probably, you know, were having cigarettes. So, so Dan Maloney wanted to get this fit, fitness stuff in, and so he paid for this fitness stuff. I mean, it was it was pretty rudimentary because we didn't have a lot of space, but he put it in through the, I think the Fitness Institute. Like I remember Harold was funny. We'd be on the bus sometime, and he'd see a jogger. And he'd go, ask that guy to do an honest day's work, right? Like, he, you know, it just, it just was a foreign thing. So anyway, I can't remember whatever money it was that was owed to them. But he, and because they were providing services and 
things weren't going well. It might have been the year we came dead last and got Wendell first overall. So so he's he's not sold on it, not liking it. Well, poor Danny Maloney. He's like Harold was always good for the deal, but he if he was pissed and he thinks he got screwed, he would stretch it out a bit. So say it was twenty five thousand dollars, whatever the amount or fifteen, I don't know. But, you know, was so finally Dan talked to Don Crump, that's the controller secretary, and said, OK, she gave him the check and he went in and got it. He's the coach of the Leafs and goes in, gets it sired by it signed by Ballard. And Ballard had this big fountain pen, so he'd sign his name. He had great signature. But from time to time, he'd write on the face of the check because you got to cash the check, right? Yeah. And this particular Maloney comes out and goes, look. So he wrote, thanks for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so Dan's got to go back to the fitness people with their yeah. money, which they're going to be happy to see. But Harold's point that he felt it was nothing, <laughs> thanks for nothing. So that was another. He'd do that. He would do that the odd time. Well, well was the guy... Gordy, that we had at training camp, the military guy. What was his name? He used to put us with the blocks. We'd do push-ups and all that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so, Mike, it was a guy. He was a great wrestling and wrestling referee yeah. named Freddie Atkins. That's right? what it was, yeah. And 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 that – I don't know if that was Harold who got him in. He'd sort of been around forever. And, he, yeah, and everyone just busted. Like, Freddie was – God, and – he he set the record for Grecian formula, holding macro Freddie. God love him <laughs> yeah. for trying, but but I knew him as a legendary wrestler. But you're right, he was, and I think he might have still been there when Roger was there. So you here here you had the most innovative coach going, and yet and you had good old yeah good old Freddie Atkins. So I don't even know I don't know if that was a Harold connection or not. But once Harold would probably have liked him, so Freddie's yeah. job would have been secure for a bit as long as Harold was around. I remember one time, uh, so. Some of the guys went to the strip strip club and uh, <laughs> they ended up getting a couple of strippers to come in. And of course they had their clothes or well, not much clothes on, but a little bit. And we were stretching and they were kind of standing there stretching and everything. And then Fred walks in and goes, what the hell's going on here? He goes, well, we're just getting ready for you, Fred. <laughs> he goes, get them ladies out of here. <laughs> Now, Gordon, a story your brother Bob can probably tell better, but maybe you, you know this one, I'm sure, is the day he was hired by Harold was the day that Wendell Clark was drafted, but it also got you indirectly a raise. Do you have yeah. that, 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 I think, is a kind of a funny story. Well, again, like, you know, Harold really liked me. He hadn't met Bob very often, and he just met and he goes, was your brother interested in uh, – uh, you know, like being in, involved in the PR and Bob at that particular point was working with Jim Gregory at NHL central scouting. So yeah, perfect, you know, kind of thing. And uh, so for about eight months, I had to kind of do everything while Bob finished up his commitment to central scouting, which was going to end at the 85 draft. Cause that's, you know, so he wanted his commitment to Jim Gregory there and that. So, so meanwhile, uh, Bob kept saying, geez, I want to talk to, you know, Ballard sometime Ballard's at the cottage at the cottage, so uh, finally comes to the draft table just that day to go there and back. And Ballard's pumped because we drafted Wendell and you had the picture earlier. We took Kenny Spangler in the second round. And then after that, Harold's going to go back to the cottage. So he goes, I want to talk, 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 tell your brother to come over now. So Bob's at the central scouting table. So he comes to our table and, and uh, Wendell's sitting there and Ken Spangler. And I had told Bob. Like I was making a cool 20 grand at the time, whatever, but there were good benefits I had accrued along the way. And I just said, you know, you only get one shot at it. So Harold's just in a great mood. So I said, you better, you got to exaggerate what you're making. Okay. You got to, you, so, 
So he gave an inflated figure of what he was making at NHL Central Scouting. I think I think he was making 23, but he said he was making 28. So Harold gave him 27. So right off, he's making 7,000 more than I am. And then, uh, and I've been there longer. And then he goes just, he goes, well, and you get all the benefits your brother did. Like holding back, he gets tickets, he gets parking, like stuff. People are dying. You got to fight tooth and nail to get that stuff. You get, uh, you know. So anyway, after that, I got, uh, Jerry McNamara got it, that I got a, I got a $7,000 raise, but, uh, which was, which was fine. But I was, um, I was doing okay we found other ways to take care of ourselves back then. Well, you were assistant GM too, and the assistant GM is making less than the PR guy. And, I know, I know. And as <laughs> your brother said it, he asked for 28 and a car. And he said, you're getting yeah. 27. And then you got the raise and he goes, you're not getting that goddamn car now. We got the car. Had to, he had to pay you. No, he got the car. He got, he the, got car. the car, did he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Once Harold, once Harold, when, when he shook hands on something, you know, and, um, and that, and, and I didn't follow my own advice later on that when, I was hired, you know, I, I didn't put anything down in writing uh, or, or I did, but I didn't put any kind of term in. It was more like a spirit that I, you know, would um, be there as long as he's happy with me. I knew it wouldn't, I didn't think it would be that short, <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but it was, uh, it, it wasn't that he was unhappy with me as much as like three months later, he had his final health episode that he never really got back from. And then, and so I'm talking 1988. So he died about 18 months later and just all the vultures moved in. You know, there were still good moments with him, but the situation with Yolanda, which gets documented there and with the kids versus Yolanda. And then, you know, I was a kid then. And, you know, I, I, uh, I, I when, when Don Crump was a executive of the will, okay. Th then I realized, okay, now I get it. Now I get, cause I thought it was all for one, one for all, but all of a sudden, you know, Bowder would point out something about the kind of money we're losing, say on the new market saints or whatever. I go, where the hell is he getting this from? And then I realized it's, you know, this, this guy trying to make himself look good. And I go, geez, you know, we were all for one, one for all back there in trying to deal with them because that's the danger. If you, if you, if you, uh, uh, poisoned somebody, you know, people had access that and, and, and it was, and it was effective. And that, that was part of, you know, what was that, what it was great. Everyone had access to them, but also it caused some problems because people would stir up shit in, in like, like uh, I'd be up in the press box and this guy gets annoyed at me because he was a good guy, but he was, so I'm not going to say his name, but he was a, a, a waiter from the hot stove. He had great hockey opinions, but I'd see him in the bunker delivering food. So he'd sit down for half a period and I go, oh, crap, because he talk hockey. And after, Bowder would bring that up. Like, geez, that guy's too old, and he makes too much money. I go, oh, for the guy just deliver the food, enjoy the game, and not not understand that, you know, like his opinions are they cause problems because, you know, he, he he takes that from whoever he talks to in the building. So a couple of questions here for you, Gordon. What was going through your mind? Look, first off, you're, first, let, let's look at it this way. As a kid growing up, Maple Leaf fam, we're all diehards, Toronto guys. You're in the Mecca of hockey kingdom, working at the gardens. So first off, you're looking at the circus going around. You got to be thinking, if only people knew what was really going on in here behind the scenes. And number two, knowing what you knew from Ballard about Jerry McNamara and watching the way guys like Roger Nielsen before you or just at the end of you, Mac, you know, Gregory and all these guys were being treated and handled. How was your psyche going through all of this? Well, it was a constant learning thing, and and you know. No, like, I mean, it was a pleasant atmosphere. So that's the thing. So there's the thing about mm. being a circus is it just was all public. Like you get now, say Larry Tannenbaum, who I do not think runs a circus, but I mean, just a regular owner of anything now would say, look, I don't want anything in the print. Okay. 
you know, everybody wants in the print and whatever uh, yeah. to be depicted as a solid leader and behind the scenes, it could be tyrants, could be whatever. And he was kind of the opposite that way that, you know, I remember once when I was GM, he sat down and we have a good chat and then he leaves. I look at the newspaper and he skewered me in the paper, like Stella, you know, whatever. And like I go, Jesus, can you, I'd rather you skewer me here than that. So, so you had to learn all those, those kind of things. So uh, I, in dealing with Jerry, I mean, Jerry didn't expect to get the job either. And so it was a great learning thing for me because I was a good administrator and that wasn't Jerry's strength initially. So, you know, we, uh, um, I uh, uh, was able to, to grow in, in that regard. And there were a lot of great people and I got, but I was, you know, and game night was so special till I don't care what, like, I don't care who right. owns the team. And I'm sorry, more special at Maple Leaf Gardens than Scotiabank Arena. Like that's not mm -hmm. a knock again. It's still special, but it was just, man, it was just, it was just wonderful. It was like, wow, what a, what a, what a treasure yeah. to be able to be a part of that. And then I, uh, you know, to get, I'd never been on an airplane in my life and I'm handling travel for the Leafs right now. So I'm, you know, get to travel with guys like Rick and everybody else. And because I was their relative peer in age, like, I mean, Ricky can attest to it or not, but I really walked a fine line that I, that I could befriend the players, but I never, you know, I, I didn't violate, I didn't, I, I didn't try to be one of them. You know, I didn't try to be one of them. And I think they understood that. So, and uh, I would never violate any confidence or trust like it didn't. But so, so it was kind of neat to be able to shoot the breeze with Ricky and John Anderson and, you know, all Danny Maloney and Boria Somming and uh, all these other guys. It was just, you know, it was wonderful to get to know them. And now, you know, decades later, you know, count them as friends. Yeah. It's, uh, it's funny uh, after seeing that documentary, of course, I, I, I knew Harold obviously pretty good and, and he did treat us, fairly good uh except for the pay but that aside he was pretty good to us um and then but listening to gary lehman what he said i still remember that to this day when i know in the paper there was brick five contracts over and you're gonna have to pay him more money and he did he turned around to me when we were going up the stairs onto the plane and said if you think you're gonna get another dime out of me you're crazy <laughs> <laughs> and see, and see, but that's a great example, Rick, because that's something that reasonably, and Jimmy Gregory was the best at it, would have been articulated with it and something would have got worked out. Now, again, you, you wouldn't be at the top end as a team would be, but 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 those kind of comments hurt. Right. And, yeah. uh, and you know, those kind of comments and just again, what I, that's why I'm baffled about the, the treatment by Jim Rutherford or Bruce Boudreau in 2023, yeah. because. You know, it's oh. it's those those con comments really are, are a shot. And like you said, even though he and also Ricky, he always said it's not personal, but it is. Like he he could do that game. He could not take things personally, although he did it because if you crossed him, right, you were screwed. But he would say, "Ah, don't worry about it. You know, don't. Who cares? You know, you know." And then he would say time to time, "I don't mind. Just tell him I'm a big I'm a big jerk, whatever, and uh, blame me and whatever." He didn't mind that stuff. But for people, and I had the same thing. You know, it could it would be. Um, even though you got trade treated well internally, that's that's kind of a, a biting comment, even though he's saying it to get headlines and get front line. But you know, like here's Rick Five just kicking ass as a Toronto Maple Leaf, and and uh and and yeah, uh when you when you when you hear that, um that 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 doesn't make you feel too good. <laughs> no, it, no. It, it, it certainly doesn't, but you know, at the time I, I was I was still relatively young and I'm thinking, hey, I'm playing in the NHL. I'm doing pretty darn good. I mean, I'm making good money relative to most people 
uh, in the world. Uh, yeah, you, you were know, the second. I, you were the second Leaf to make three hundred after Boria. Your second contract yeah. was two seventy five, two eighty five, and three hundred. I typed yeah. it up. Yeah, <laughs> I, I remember that. And uh, but it was it was. And then getting Mike, traded Mike three may days have before it. training. <laughs> no, I didn't have three that days before. Three yeah. days before training camp, getting traded to Chicago, and then I got a. I'm at a golf tournament up at Horseshoe Valley, and I got to drive home, pack up, and leave. And then uh, it was, of course, the, the league was different back then too. I mean, you were left on your own, your wife and you to do everything. Now they kind of look after everything for you. Oh yeah, 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 and, and also that tournament back then, I, I was dating. Um, Vicky McKee, who was with Telemedia, that was the Telemedia tournament, yeah. I think for Special Olympics. And I, and I yeah. knew, I knew the trade was in the works and, you know, and I was going to recommend you, you know, you and, uh, you and Steve Thomas, you know, not like to her, you know, there's no point them going kind of thing. Well, then I, she's the, it didn't happen except the proviso was she had to call me every half hour because there are no cell phones. So we get a mm -hmm. hold of you. And she was pissed, man. She was not happy about this. So, you know, I acquiesced. I'm sorry about that. I hope you had a good day up till you were traded. My my recommendation. But even then, I, I think Jerry probably wouldn't have gone because you really you really can't tell someone. At least back then. Nowadays, they have a call and they bring in the agents and central registry. So, you know, back then, till it actually happened, uh, even even though I knew it wasn't going to be a, a a fun ending, probably. Even though moving on ended up being great in many ways, but just it wasn't going to be a fun ending to the day. That kind of unexpected part. Sorry. No, absolutely, and but but like you said though, like there was four or five teams that ran their team very very well, and then the rest were the same as Toronto pretty much, and I go to Chicago, and then what happens there? Well, Bob Murdoch's our coach my first year, I get forty three goals. And then all of a sudden, Mike Keenan gets fired in Philly. And, of course, Eagleson calls Wurtz and says, if you don't sign him, your rival down the road in St. Louis are going to sign him. So he panics. He signs Mike Keenan before he even tells Murdoch, who finds out from the press. And then I get traded the day after Christmas. And I'm talking to Jerry Mia not that long ago. Mike Keenan wanted to make the trade on Christmas Day. Oh, jeez. And Jerry said, no, no, we can't do that. He goes, well, there is no rule, which there wasn't back then. No, there wasn't. And so he could have done it if Jerry had have agreed, but Jerry said, there's no way we're trading him on Christmas Day. And it happened yeah. the next morning. So anyway. <laughs> now, now, Gord, for you, when you finally became GM, what was the one thing that surprised you about the job you'd never really considered before? Or was there anything? Or were you sort of prepared for it? Uh, I would say... I would say nothing surprised me um, because uh, I'd been tight with, uh, I got to know Jim Gregory. He sort of mentored parts of it. Uh, Punch Imlac had been good to me. And then with Jerry, I'd done a lot of the stuff. And I just, when I got hired, it was weird. I just like, you know, you're talking about Rick talk and running as, you know, when you're, when you're running your first practice somewhere and whatever, I just went back to my same office, you know, I just went back there. So I just yeah. kind of understood the task at hand. I, I knew, that in, in, a, in a perfect world or not even a perfect world, I, I would like to have been surrounded by quality hockey people. You know, that's what good organizations do. That's not what we were ever going to do. So I understood that. Like I, I, I wanted a role for Roger Nielsen, whether he was uh, 
you know, uh, not not so much a coach, but something. He was looking for a job. Ironically, I ended up working with him in with the New York Rangers. Uh, so so yeah, it was it was just a really uh, uh, like you know, and I had a coach that um, in in Brofe that I tried to make it work, and then I had a coach that didn't want to coach, and George Armstrong, and then we had we had a lot of soap opera stuff, which I'll leave alone off the ice that year that went on as well. So, I mean, that part didn't, uh, uh, wasn't conducive as well. So I, we still, I, I still, you know, look back and it ended up being that part of my life about a, it's like I went on a roller coaster for 16 months and kept riding it and riding it, the flyer at the X. And all of a sudden after that, you were, you were kind of, you were kind of off it. And you just kind of go, what happened? Oh my goodness, what happened? And uh, it was. Now what about uh, some of the GMs coming after you? They would, they, now who, who were the first guys to come? Like, where were some, did, can you tell us some of the crazy trades you got thrown at maybe guys trying to take advantage of you? Well, it'd be the old school people like John Ferguson, who yeah. was very nice and Bob Pulford. Um, I'm, uh, I, Lou, Lou Lamorello, I, I kid about, it. I said, Lou Lamorello and I had very parallel careers, except he lasted 30 years longer. Right. But I, uh, but I liked Lou, but I do remember once, uh, he, you know, he called and we're talking trade and he was kind of being mysterious. And, uh, he goes, I'm going to close the door now because of whatever. And he came back and he, he gave the name of a guy who was playing in Utica. I thought, give me an NHL player, will you? Like, like, you know, you're, you know, give me Ken Danico or Scott Niedermeyer or, or, or it wasn't Niedermeyer back then, but whatever. Yeah. Uh, you know, just those kind of guys and stuff. So um, David Poyle, um, David Poyle, Jerry Meehan, and uh, were probably the guys that were, you know, uh, good with me. I think probably, who was the other one? David, you know, actually with Bobby Clark of all people, just that, I, there was a number of trades of Bob Clark, the Ken Reggett for two first round picks. Uh, Al Secord, we traded him there. Um, well, why Bill did you finish that few. trade with the right? Because that led to the three Belleville Bulls. So that's yeah. one you'd like to maybe talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, as we talk, get ready for trade deadline that, uh, again, Ken Reggett, because of some off ice stuff as well, it was time to move on. And uh, I think, Ricky, you would agree. We love Kenny. I love Kenny Reggett uh, as a person. And, and so, uh, I had uh, it going. It was it was Washington with Poyle. I had Buff and I had Buffalo with Jerry Meehan. And yeah, it's all these three guys and Bobby Clark. So we're working it, and then all of a sudden, I don't remember how it came up, but Clarky Clarky goes, uh, you know, I just said the draft picks, and I knew they had two first round picks. And Clarky goes, well, you know, my scouts will probably kill me, but um, might consider the two first round picks. So anyway, I just said, so I got back to him. 10 minutes later said, if you do that, we'll, we'll, we'll do the trade whenever. And, um, and you know, like a couple of days, we won't wait till the trade deadline. And then he called back and we did the trade. And then, and, and it was a really, really good trade. Now, in, I will say smartly, he would have checked with the scouts who wouldn't have been happy, but the 1989 draft was not a deep draft. Okay. So he was smart about that. So we had the three first round picks and the whole Belleville Bulls thing, which ends up being, you know, all these jokes about our scouting budget didn't go by Belleville. Yeah. So uh, we had, the, so, so the, the first round um, we're picking third overall and we're really debating between like, like Matt Sundin's going first overall. We really liked Dave Chizuski who ended up going second to the honor. Really liked him. Like if he fell to third, we would have taken him. He had some injuries, didn't finish, you know. Um, so number three, Scott Thornton, Stu Barnes, Scott Thornton, Stu Barnes, Stu Barnes is with Tri-City. And even the night before, Glenn Sather called me in at the hotel and was talking a deal. And then just, who are you thinking of taking? And um, I, he said, here, I'll get our scouting book because Winnipeg was picking after us. 
And uh, the worst player Winnipeg got helps Edmonton. So I never thought. So anyway, he looked, he goes, yeah, we got Thornton ahead of Barnes too. So anyway, we take, we take Scott Thornton. The second one, we were really hoping to get Rob Pearson. This was the one we were really hoping. And Rob yeah. Pearson was a really good pick there. And, you know, he had a couple of good years and then got hurt. Mm-hmm. But that was the guy we were really, I was thrilled when we got Rob Pearson. So that's really the first pick of the two we get for Ken Reggett. And then we're picking 21st. And I think right before us, and it's no different than, you know, people watching this, that when you're at a hockey pool, it's no different. And someone picks who you want just before, like it's really no different. And we really wanted Stephen Rice from Kitchener. And uh, he got picked, I think, right before. And so all of a sudden now we got to think, and our our plans were, and it's funny, we had two guys from Cornell uh, in Kent Manderville was a forward, Dan Ratushny, a defenseman. And then we had one scout really pushing um, Steve Bancroft from Belleville. Now the pick we should have made was Adam Foote. Adam Foote should have been taken like 20 picks earlier. Okay. But the, but that adds it that the next pick after that was Adam Foote. So we, yeah. we had, we had not even thought about it. Right. Cause we were really hoping bank uh, or Pearson would be available. And then someone said, geez, you know what? We'll, we'll be taking three guys from Belleville. And we actually thought it was kind of cool, which if they all really panned out would have been super cool. Yep. But uh, yeah. anyway, so I, ra- I run into Scott Thornton a couple years ago during Thanksgiving. He lives up in Collingwood and just yeah. in the Blue Blue Mountain Village there. And so we just I, I have had very little contact over the years. But just say hi. He goes, you know something? You know what I hear all the time? It's about the three Belleville Bulls. He goes, <laughs> it's the legacy that keeps getting brought up decades later. So so that was the that was the anatomy of a trade and a draft. And you know what? I'm I'm I I'm happy of my work I did as a general manager both in the trade and in what went about and what turned out to be a weak draft. You know, if only Stephen Rice had slipped one one more. <laughs> now, Gord, back then, like, uh, I mean, I know most teams probably were similar, but in the scouting department, get to that. Did they did they have enough guys that that went out and saw the players enough or did they rely heavily on uh, central scouting yeah ours was brutal ours was brutal and not not the end i'll tell you so first of all jerry mcnamara was a solid scout but he became a general manager didn't really get replaced i guess maybe floyd smith went from you know being a coach to becoming the scout floyd smith was an excellent scout excellent scout he was really our only scout like Johnny Bauer was a scout, but at that point, Johnny should have just been like an ambassador, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, like the Jean Bellable was with Montreal, but that's the kind of stuff Harold and that's, you know, a problem wouldn't pay for a lot of teams wouldn't pay for it. Don't get me wrong. Like there's not a lot of teams that were doing it back then, you know, these right. kind of nice jobs for alumni. So, so Johnny at that point wasn't really advocating for players as much. He was, I don't know. So, so, so Floyd almost had his way. He had some part-time scouts, which weren't bad. They weren't bad, but they were part-timers. So the ones you're just watching the Western League and, you know, whatever. And I do know, and I got to give Floyd credit for this one. He kind of to show about it that whatever year Joe Newendike was picked in the second round, I think it was 86, I don't know. But he had a weird thing that he had played Tier 2, and then he had this 30-game, like, killer season at Cornell, like just out of the blue. So no one had really heard about him. So the Calgary Flames picked him in the second round, and it was an excellent pick. He continued to blossom. But Smitty, rightly so, said later, he goes, you know something, like, we didn't even have him on our list, okay? Like, it's one thing if you misevaluate someone. Like, it's one thing if you say, you know, Rick Vibe goes in the first round, we got him in the fifth round. We didn't have him on our list. 
And that and that was about not having anyone who had a chance to go see him. So there's no question. And we weren't alone that way. But yeah, you know, and then that's one of the things I brought in was uh, I brought in Dan Marr as a scout who's now the head of NHL Central Scouting, yeah. you know, and, and so, you know, baby steps are starting to be made, you know, made in, the, in that manner. Yeah. Well. It's, it's more it's more it's more the later ones, the yeah. later nuggets that the depth and scouting helps you. Right. Like we were pretty good about getting Wendell first overall or, you know, Alfie fourth or Russ sixth or whatever it may be Lehman in the second round. But, you know, the, the teams that have deep scouting are the ones that, you know, we're digging, like digging nuggets later on. And we're in an organization where Jerry McNamara was a pioneer in getting Borja Somming and Inga Hammerstrom to open the Swedish market. And then, you know, we basically, because of Ballard's animus about things, he's sort of became anti-European as far as players go, except for Borea. So, so we, we were sort of out of that, you know, at a time when the Red Wings were getting all those great Swedish and Russian players. Yeah. yeah the, I mean, uh, yeah. I mean ahead, it's, well, getting Borea Salming was obviously a big, big uh, coup for, for the Maple Leafs. And I do remember when it's funny, the things I remember, but, we were in the hallway outside the, or that, that room outside the dressing room at the gardens. And Harold just came up to me. I was 22 and he just went like this and he poked me in the chest. He goes, you're our captain. And I'm like, Shit, I'm like 22 goddamn years yeah. old. Right. <laughs> I'm thinking, am I ready for this? I don't, I don't think I am. And then, but I, in the back of my mind, I'm going, if I say no to Harold, He's going to trade me right now, like tomorrow. And I kind of figured he would. Uh, so, so I said, yeah, okay. And thankfully I had Borea sitting beside me because if it wasn't for him, he backed me up all the time. And uh, I was very thankful for that. Yeah. You know, Borea says in retrospect, he maybe should have taken the C himself. He never had that interest, but I, I admired what you did and you wore the crest with a lot of pride. And uh, you didn't have a strong leadership group or a strong veteran leadership group around you, just like, you know, I'm talking about no. that, that was a that was a reality. But it just, you know, like I said, it was a um, different era back then. But you wore it with a lot of pride and uh, the 350 goal seasons. And, you know, there were there are a lot of a lot of positives that came out. Of, but the, but I guess, again, the negative is why the seat was available. Because now Daryl Sittler's, you know, um, giving it up after Lanny McDonald's gone and, you know, losing guys like that. Tiger ended up being you, so that was a, a good trade. But you know, so anyway, we sort of had to pick up the pieces in the early 1980s, and that you can't do that overnight. Uh, Gord, yeah. I know, I know you're tired of hearing this, and I'm tired of hearing it too. But the, the trade you've always been known for is the quarter for Russ Courtney trade, and you know, I don't want to get into that from that standpoint. While it didn't turn out right for Toronto, and it did for Russ Courtney. Take us through the process of what really happens in a trade, any trade, and even that one in particular, if you want to touch on it. The point I'm trying to make here is trades aren't made just for the sake of making a trade. There's a lot that goes into it. So maybe walk us through what would happen in that, that type of occurrence. Well, and of course, nowadays, you got a lot more pro scouts and, and that and that. But I, I think, Mike, that in an ideal world, if, you, if you're my pro scout, I, 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 want, I want opinions instantly like about, okay, I can get Rick Vive. Where do you think he'll fit on our team? Yeah. And you say, you know what? He'll be at our second line. Like, okay. So, you know, not, not about, I got to watch 10 more games. Like, you know, where you got a book on him and, you know, maybe we'll watch a game or two and hone in a little bit, but that's what you want to always have an idea because it's not the grand slam home run. It's the incremental. If you, if, if, 
if you make more incrementally positive moves, you know, then all of a sudden, whoa, you know, you're going to be uh, you're going to be better. Like Cliff and Floyd brought in four defensemen, you know, Cliff uh, or Floyd traded for Bob Rouse and Dave Ellett and Cliff got Sylvain Lefebvre and Jamie McCowan. And, you know, I know we talk about Gilmore and Anderchuk and those guys we also acquired, but that was huge to get, you know, those kind of kind of players back then. Now, cap world, Cliff couldn't do it. The cap, you know, so, but, you know, just that kind of process. So yeah. what happened with Russ was I, like I was at the draft table when Russ got drafted. I, uh, I really liked Russ, liked his mom, got to know his brother, Jeff, a little bit, the whole thing. And he was the one guy that, you know, broke one of the guys, you know, young guy, all the natural skill, yappy, exactly what Brofe didn't like. And Russ couldn't give a shit that Brof didn't like him. Yep. Okay. That kind of thing. So season started and I know like, okay, we've got the Borea thing tendered. We got rid of Miroslav Fritcher, which is one of, one of uh, uh, Brof's demands. And that was fine. Frigo moved on somewhere else. So we're kind of, you know, going, we're, we're, you're trying to keep the reins on it and that. And then I can remember, I think it was a game in Chicago stadium that I didn't realize that uh, uh, Russ wasn't dressing. And he, he just came to me, goes, and I, I got to get out of here kind of thing. And, you know, um, so Danny Dow was dressing as the fourth center. I like to, he's chirps me a lot. Rick, I go, wait a second. I made the Cardinal trade because of you. So, uh, <laughs> so we got off to a strong start. And, um, and so that you couldn't take excuses. And Russ had been a healthy scratch for a number of those games. So I'd said to Russ, I said, look, you keep quiet. Um, and if you're not going to play, I'll, I'll, I'll look to work out a better situation for you. So Brof, and this is it. Like I said, early starting off, I didn't grease the skids for Brof. I said, okay, this is the guy he wanted. He'd been in the Montreal organization before Brof was with Nova Scotia. 1986. I know it becomes urban myth and whatever, but John Cordick was a huge part of the Canadians winning a Stanley cup or an underrated part of the Canadians winning a Stanley cup. So, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, there's that you want a tough guy. There's no tougher guy in the NHL at that time than him. So mm-hmm. I can remember at first, at first Serge Savard, we had a few chats. Serge was a bit of man of mystery. You could never pin him down. He had a phone you. So whatever, whatever, <laughs> just so. Um, and we talked about Todd Gill at one point and then Cordinal's name came up and it just happened to come up with, after the talk with Russ and with uh, him not dressing. So yeah. So made the trade and um, didn't, Again, we didn't have the scouting at that point to understand that two and a half years later, it was a far different John Cordick. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to mm-hmm. pile on about his issues because there was really, there's no, really a wonderful side to him. Like when, when Cam Neely was getting inducted in the Hockey Hall of Fame, I used to, you know, MC that weekend about different things. And we had this long talk about playing together, him and Cordick playing together in Portland. You know, he went like you go back to your roots and about how effective he was. And he was a defenseman back then. So anyway, that was it. And, you know, for a while there were snippets. People don't remember that. Wow. That being tough was a huge part of that team. And, and especially the next year when I had just left and Doug Carpenter had that one year, I mean, that was a big part of it. And then, like a lot of things, when people are struggling with certain issues, it doesn't take a lot for it to come off the rails. So, you know, it, it's a tragic ending to John Cordick's story. Yeah. Uh, you know, Russ, I keep in touch with. Like, so Russ was the guy, you know, one thing Punch Imlach did, he traded Lanny McDonald deliberately to the Colorado Rockies so you never would see him, okay? Well, I traded Russ to Montreal. I didn't do that for my own hide. So every bloody Saturday, there's Russ getting two goals with that – beautiful smile and looking like a million bucks. And 
there's 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 John Gordick, whatever you know something. So anyway, good for us. And uh, I I I really enjoyed John Gordick as a person. There were he was complicated. There just were a lot of issues. He was a funny, funny, really personable guy. And I'm I'm sorry whatever happened up to 1986. You know, it, it couldn't keep moving forward in that direction. Yeah, I, was, I, I, I think I can fill you in a little bit on the Cortinal Brophy situation. Brophy was a guy that, like, he wanted 100% out of you, whatever way you played, okay? But he also wanted guys to, to play hard and, and, you know, play a little more physical. And Russ wasn't that type of player. Russ was a, you know, fast, skilled kid that, that you know, was a very good player. But as you said, he didn't give a shit a lot of times about things. And, and both, I think, I think that bothered John that, that he didn't give him a hundred percent of the way he played. And I think Russ, on the other hand, like a lot of people, they didn't get both like, like I did and other guys did. And I think he thought that he wanted them to play tough. Well, that's not what he wanted them to do. He wanted them to give him a hundred percent of his game. And on certain nights, as you said, Russ wouldn't do that. Well, even so, Mike and Rick, like here we are 30 plus years later. And honest to God, I don't know when it was. It was a couple of weeks ago. I'm walking down Young Street with a friend and some car comes by and you hear a person yell, Cardinal for Cardick. Like, I go, are, you kidding me? are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? So, uh, but part of it is, um, I'm fortunate that I carried on a media career, which I've really enjoyed. So that's where, I mean, people don't even remember Cliff anymore, but Floyd Smith and Mike Smith, and, you know, <laughs> Ken Dryden and all that stuff. They don't get stuff like that yelled at them. But anyway, I take it, I take it, I take it okay, but it's still remarkable. Well, it's staying power. Well, Gordon, let me put, say this. We've had, we had uh, Rusty on the, uh, on the podcast and he speaks glowingly about you. And he did tell us about his time with Brophy and there was a lot of, fuck you, fuck you moments in the face-to-face -face with those two. And he also told us a funny story about him and Wendell being such young kids that another part of Harold that people aren't aware of, he'd give they, he'd give you a couple hundred bucks extra because no one knows two kids would be running out of money all the time and they'd be coming up to you and you'd say, how much you two need now? And you'd give them a hundred bucks or whatever they needed. Yeah, yeah. Now, you know, yeah, yeah, little things like that. You know, we try, like back then we didn't even try to get them places now. Like I know my brother, my son's friends with Wyatt Johnston and Dallas has him living with Joe Pavelski. Right. You know, we never, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you didn't even do those kind of things. And Ricky broke in at a very, very young age, but you were really on your own about everything. And uh, so that was a little part we, you know, tried to do. And again, it goes back to Jim Benning and Ally Afraidy plunking them in this big bloody city that is 18 year olds and not really understanding or, or helping them with the enormity uh, of, of what they're trying to deal with. So that's kind of the, the remnants of what, what, what they call old school still permeating in the 1980s. Now the no, short I, time you were with the Rangers, talk about that and what happened there. Um, a lot of real positives, but I learned, I think everyone's got a tough less life lesson that, you know, Harold Balder was always the boss and I understood that. And, you know, so whatever difficulties were there, he was there in front of me as the boss the guy that can really screw you is the person that's your friend and then sticks it to you. And that's what happened with me and Neil Smith. Neil Smith actually con convinced me to leave. There were a couple of other situations that probably would have been better. Like I, it, I, I felt 
and rightly so after I left and George Armstrong became left as the coach. It all, it all, it, it became a thing that George was going to coach a team. He didn't want to coach and it was getting awfully close to training camp. So the domino effect happened. And I, I really, you know, it really hurt to see that team from afar have such yeah. a particularly good season and leave. So um, I, so I went to New York, got to work with Roger Nielsen, got to work some great guys like Larry Plo and, and Don Waddell, who's now doing a great job in Carolina. And, um, but, but I went like, like bingo. I was like Mary Tyler Moore. I was all of a sudden there the next day, you know, and again, a lot of what we just talked about these 23 year olds, like you're in Manhattan and, you know, you're trying to figure stuff out compared to the comfy of, of being in Toronto. So I, like, I basically um, had so many positives about so many friends but, you know, and Neil um, won a Stanley Cup later on, or really Mike Keenan won it. But, um, but yeah, he, he was very paranoid and whatever, and I probably didn't handle it well because I gave up a lot to go there. So I got, uh, I, I used the word rinsed, you know, I got, I got rinsed, I got rinsed. And it was quite a, <laughs> quite a lesson. And, and then when I, when they I tried, I, they tried to screw me on my contract. So I, a guy who acted for me, uh, Bob Goodenow, became head of the NHL Players Association. So yeah. I didn't. I was all of a sudden this militant guy, you know, which I'm not, right? So it ended up that it wasn't like more management jobs were coming because of that experience. And then the broadcasting side opened up. So, which I love doing. That's what I dreamt of as a kid. So yeah. I kind of kind of went there, but. Um, Hey, you know, every, everyone's everyone's got their story. Neil's had a lot of hardship lately in a personal sense. You know, I've run into him since and, you know, many, many times. But uh, but that that really was it. I, I I I figured out how to work, you know, Harold and figured it out. And then all of a sudden I got a guy like Neil when he puts the screws to you and then you're in a corporate environment where it is like now an MLSE, but you don't wear as much jewelry as, you know, and it was a whole different thing. So it ends up it ends up being. Yeah. Great life experience. It's a professional setback in some ways at the time, but like anybody, it's up to all of us to, uh, you know, bounce back from that and figure something else out. It's great. We got yeah, a couple no. minutes left, Bird. We've had so much time with you. We got uh, just get a couple final thoughts, Squid. No, I. I mean, you know, I just wish that I hadn't been traded out of Toronto. I mean, I loved it in Toronto. Uh, my wife loved it, Toronto. Love playing at the gardens and, you know, then seeing the team, what, four or five, four or five years after I was gone, having success, I wish I had stayed around and maybe been part of that, you know? So, I mean, Hey, uh, you, you look back and a lot of things happen as gorgeous said his time in New York and that, and yep. shit happens and you have to kind of move on and forget about it. But I agree like with Rick in that uh, because we struggled through some tough days on and off the ice, uh, it would have been sweet to have been there. But, you you know, you figure out other other victories yeah. and, you know, like, like it's funny, like, you know, Cliff Fletcher, he, he owned the town and people don't even I, I love Cliff, but people don't even really know who he is. Right. He's sort of been he's still part of the organization and that you know, as time moves on. But I just, you know, look, it's uh, and Mike and reminiscing and with the Ballard documentary, it's and, and what Rick's alluding to. And you know too, Mike, because you have kind of a uh, that that uh, the the sanctum sanctum or inner sanctum, all that great quality stuff. That yeah. it's 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 magical. Like it's as Brian yeah. Burke said, it's the cathedral. Yeah. It's Maple Leaf Gardens. There's nothing compares. I don't care. Nothing compares. Whatever about it. Just you know, every time I my car, uh, I drove the car, I got to park beside the building and whatever. Holy crap! 
this is Maple Leaf Garden. So Ricky the got to the play there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and so that part's neat. So it's one we all we're very fortunate to have that opportunity. Yeah. Well, I was, I was going to say to you that. Um, oh, by the way, Kent Manderville ended up being a Maple Leaf, if you recall. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, 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 he came in. He came in the Doug. He came in the Doug Gilmore trade. trade. Yeah. That's right. Um, That's now, right. just a, in conclusion here, if you had a, if you've touched on it uh, uh, briefly, but if you had to summarize your time at the Gardens, how would you describe it, and what would you do differently, if anything? So, well, you know, just like uh, you know, my dad's a TV repairman. Our dad is, who's not a hockey fan, right? So our so it was a series of like lucky events, and then the dumbest thing was I could type seventy words a minute back when nobody could type. Yeah. So. Howie Stark, but anyway, left to, to work for the Toronto Blue Jays. So they needed someone in the office. So, okay. So boom. So I, I can't like, I wouldn't change a thing. I wouldn't. And, and there's yep. other moments that, and I didn't realize when Jim Gregory said, okay, but I first got a check with Ballard that Ballard could have vetoed my $4 an hour part-time job. And I never would have started. I don't know, you know? And um, so I, 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 like I said, you know, at, at the end, you know, I controlled a bit more than Rick, but there were circumstances that made it the right thing to do. I just happened to go to the wrong situation, but that's all, you know, that, that's all I got. It, it was just, uh, it was just wonderful. It was wonderful. And, uh, uh, so much growth that gave me and, and, uh, but, but, you know, Ricky, the funny part is like you're in or you're out, aren't you? And that's the thing, yeah, like, that's yeah. the thing that other, other walks of life you leave and you're just like about a thousand other companies, if you're in financial right. planning or you're whatever, but you're really, you're in, and you're out and it hurts when you're out even whatever it just there's no middle there's no middle but also you can't just stay in all the time you, you got like everyone like really at some point you got to grow in that but yeah it it, mm -hmm. it was uh, it was magical magical there we go yeah Perfect. it was uh I, I mean i love my time in toronto but I also love my time in Chicago, even though it was short. And Buffalo, I, Buffalo was a wonderful place to play. I, I, I don't know why people talked about Buffalo in Toronto back then. Well, maybe because of all the fires or whatever that they were having down there. But, <laughs> but playing at the old odd there and with the guys I got to play with, uh, and we were treated extremely well in Buffalo. The people there were great. The fans were great. Um, you know, so I, I, you know, hey, I. I had a good career. I got to see some different cities. I got to play in some different uh, cities, two original six teams. What the hell am I going to complain about? Absolutely. Well, guys, Gordy, thanks so much for your time. We took up a lot of it today. Enlightening as always. And uh, thanks, Mike. You're going to the All Star game, I hear. You guys have got a little gig I heard this morning talking on. Uh, yeah. Morning yes. State. So Sirius, yeah, Sirius XM NHL Network Radio would uh, cut a new deal. Like, who would have thought this burgeoning satellite radio? So we're actually mm -hmm. going to be covering the skills competition and the the game. So I get a, my color commentary, which I did for a number of years. So, uh, yep, yeah, looking forward to that. So, um, yeah, I'm still still kicking like Ricky is, right? We're still at it. And uh, I, it was great catching up with you guys. Okay, great. Thanks for joining us, Gordy. All the best. Okay, thanks, thanks a lot, Gordy. Thanks.